Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that removes the awkward scheduling dance of finding a time to meet. Looking back at the times when we used to exchange 10 emails just to find a time to meet feels like the dark ages, but we still have a long way to go. Most of the other scheduling tools of today put the burden on the recipient, which can be even more inconvenient than trading emails in the first place. Using a scheduling tool should be just as easy for the recipient as it is for you, the sender. And that's SavvyCal. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Benjamin Shapiro, not the political personality. Benjamin is the host of the MarTech podcast and the Voices of Search podcasts. I wanted to bring him on because he just joined the HubSpot Podcast Network with his podcast and has one of the top marketing podcasts in the space. We get into some really interesting conversations, so you'll hear about the surprising growth hacks he used at eBay to get distribution into millions of computers, quite literally, how marketing differs at bootstrap businesses versus VC-backed startups, and how his podcast gets hundreds of thousands of downloads per month. All righty. So... To start out, I usually like to ask my guests, did you ever think that you'd be doing marketing and podcasting for a living? Yes and no. I, in college, was a marketing major. And honestly, I, I, I went into business because I wanted to have a job that was practical. Right? I felt like mm. I needed to figure out how to make money and eventually support a family, even though I was in college and I didn't really know what that meant. But I went into marketing because it was the 90s and early 2000s. And I honestly thought that's where the courses where all the cute girls were. And <laughs> I mean, look, I was a 18, 19 year old kid. That's really all I cared yeah. about at the time. And uh, so, so it turns out I really liked marketing and sort of the overlap of the art and science of the medium and really sort of grew into it and so kind of lucked into it, but it found that I really enjoyed the classes and the subject matter. And it wasn't just all the pretty girls. It was the subject matter was interesting because I thought it was creative and hmm. because I thought marketing was like guys drinking bourbon and thinking about, you know, radio ads and stuff back then. And, uh, you know, podcasting wasn't necessarily something that existed when I was in college in the late 90s, early 2000s. But I did have a background in performing arts. You know, in, in high school, I was the you know in some of the plays and stuff in high school, and mm. you know was always kind of good on stage and as a public speaker. So it makes sense to be in the medium now. But no, I, I didn't think I was going to grow up and be the equivalent of an uh, internet radio host. <laughs> right, hindsight's always twenty twenty as well. Kind of connecting the dots. But like you said, it's also impossible to kind of. Uh, see the future and know, you know, what the industry is going to turn into and what jobs will even look like or sound like or what the titles will be. And now podcasting is such a kind of ubiquitous. It seems like everyone, their mom has a podcast, right? There's a lot of them. You know, I think that everybody's had a podcast where most people mm. are recording a podcast and they're doing 10 episodes. And then I think the tour, the term is pod faded. So they, you know, record a podcast, publish 10 episodes and they're like, this is kind of a lot of work. And then they're out. And so they say, oh, I have a podcast. And they're, they're not podcasting. Right, right. Yeah, they podcasted in the, the past tense. I think there was some yeah. sort of stat I saw a while back where it was something crazy. Like, I want to say 
50 or 75% of all podcasts don't even have more than one episode. And then something like 90% of podcasts don't have more than 10 episodes. Do you know the, the stat I'm talking about? The one that I've seen is the average podcast has six episodes. Okay. Which makes, you know, the MarTech podcast, that makes us like, I don't know, 1,500 podcasts worth of content. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a, that's a lot of episodes. A lot, <laughs> I feel then, like we did a lot of work. Yeah, well, I, I can understand why they get that average now, because if you have a whole bunch of podcasts with just one or two or three episodes, and then you have the MarTech episode, a podcast with a whole bunch, then, you know, sort of skews the average in, in one direction. The first podcast I ever launched only has six episodes. It was called A Long Road Home, and it actually got what got me into podcasting. I had too many beers and needed to take an Uber home. Uh, it was a Lyft, actually. And, you know, it was back in the day when you could sit up front in a car with a stranger and they would drive you home for money. And, you know, now the, the way the world has changed a little bit, obviously, because of the pandemic. But started talking to the guy who was the driver, and he had very broken english and we were driving through san francisco and i was you know hey where are you from and he says oh, i'm from north korea and i honestly corrected him i'm such a jerk for doing this but i corrected him because i figured he oh, oh, didn't right. understand the language very well because he was having a hard time you know completing the sentences appropriately in english i shouldn't say appropriately but he had he was using broken english yeah. and he i was like no you're from south korea north korea is the one that's that's the bad one he's like no i'm from north korea and i was so oh, no. embarrassed <laughs> but i was like how the heck did you get to you know san francisco from north korea and he started telling me this story about how he defected from north korea through china and he got captured and put into like essentially slavery and then snuck wow. across the border again and you know was able to to defect and ended up in the united states and he was adopted by a, a church and I think it was Livermore or somewhere in the, you know, in the Bay Area. And then he was studying engineering and was driving Lyft to pay the bills. And it was just such an amazing story that I, when I got out of the car, I'm like, you got to tell this story to other people. He's like, I want to, I just don't know how. And I was like, I'll record it and I'll turn it into a podcast. And it, he came over, you know, I gave him my business card and no he way. came over and we recorded it. I had to buy all the gear. I'd never recorded a podcast before. And it became the A Long Road Home podcast. And I did a whole PR, you know, plan for it and got picked up in the local newspapers. And the next thing you know, I was a podcaster. That's amazing. I, so I had seen that was one of the ones we were chatting right before where I was like, I, keep, I feel like I keep finding sort of new things in my research. And A Long Road Home was one of the podcasts where I was like, wow, that's, you know, there's a whole slew. I think that maybe I counted six podcasts. And so The Long Road Home was, or I should say A Long Road Home was the first in sort of mm -hmm. the, the foray into podcasting, but it only yeah, lasted it, for six episodes from what you well, said. Well, it was an art project and it was seasonal. So, you know, I mm. completed two seasons and okay. while it might only be six episodes, it was also six hours of content. And so, oh, wow. you know, my episodes now are like, you know, for the MarTech podcast are 15 to 20 minutes each. So, you know, that would have been, more episodes with my current duration but they were you know more heavily produced it was something i'm really yeah. proud of and i really had no clue what i was doing at the time i had to find the editor it's actually the editor i'm still working with today right. um and uh, yeah i mean it was really 
kind of just things really fell into place. I feel I always thought it would make a great movie, Charles mm. Ryu, Chol's Ryu, Chol Ryu's story, and uh, I was very proud to be able to help him tell it. And he's now you know off doing amazing things and wow. trying to help free the people of North Korea. But yeah, it was a project I was really proud of. That's amazing. Yeah, so it's kind of a maybe even a little bit ahead of its time, kind of a this American Life narrated style sounds like because it was longer form, and you're kind of like piecing it together a bit. Or I don't know if I'd say it was ahead of time, uh, ahead of the times. It was right after Serial, and it was right okay. when I was yeah. discovering podcasts as a medium, and so I thought that podcasts were supposed to be seasons. And they mm. were supposed to be storytelling and narrative. And then when I decided that I was going to experiment with podcasting to help support my consulting business, I decided that I was going to do an interview series. And, you know, I thought that was innovative. Turns out everybody and their mother is doing <laughs> podcast interviews. Nothing personal. You know, I do it too. But I thought that that was like, you know, innovative at the time. It was three years ago now. But yeah, you know, I thought that's what podcasts were supposed to be. They were supposed to be long stories that were broken into audio, you know, television episodes as opposed to quick interviews like what you would hear on the radio. Right, right. Yeah, isn't it interesting how a lot of times when there's like a new medium or some sort of new channel, if you want to call it that, in the beginning, it's it's like super specific and there's some sort of pioneer that kind of paves the way for what it should look like with podcasts, you know, is this very narrative, long form, highly produced, seasonal, episodic series. And then, you know, we look at things like TikTok, right, where it started out as uh, you do a dance to a song, right? And now it's, you know, much more than that. And every platform we can look at, Facebook was a network for college kids, and now it's sort of the ubiquitous social pl- network for, for the world. It just always expands to you more than what you originally thought it would be. You know, I was listening to Adam Duritz, who's the lead singer of the Counting Crows. They've got a new album that's out, and they were like my favorite band in high school. I idolized him as a recording artist and he was talking about the band's early days and sort of how it got started and with all the mediums that you're talking about it's kind of similar to how bands get discovered where there's this indie phase Hmm. where there's a lot of people that are just doing a lot of stuff and putting a lot of work into a project because you know for the love of the game and then eventually they get discovered for one thing and it blows up and then people all you know, jump on the bandwagon and then people get irritated that everybody's on the bandwagon. Mm. You know, in music, it's this band had songs and I used to see them in these tiny little clubs in San Francisco and then Mr. Jones came out and everybody loved them and I was so happy for them, but then they were everywhere and they became uncool and I personally have always loved the Counting Crows, but, you know, people got irritated (laughs) with them after their second record. Same thing with the the social media, you know, it's like, hey, the podcast, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of podcasters before Serial. And they were using the medium to communicate one to many. And it just, you know, it was kind of a indie type of thing. You're, you know, ham radio type communication. Then Serial came along and, and, and that was the, you know, Trojan horse because everybody had to hear it become because it became a big part of pop culture. Yeah. And, and you know, after Serial was there, then all of a sudden people sort of understood the, the value and the power of the medium, and it got more wide universal adoption. And now mm-hmm. everyone and their mother has a podcast. 
Yeah. Well, there's the history of podcasting in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> and, uh, Thank you back. and good night. <laughs> yeah, right. We can, we can close it there. No, so going back a little bit to your, to your background, your, your marketing major, maybe the sort of Trojan horse there wasn't marketing per se, but then you finished with the marketing major. And, and so walk me through, like, graduate, what are all the steps and sort of like, what, can you give me a brief timeline of how you got to where you are today? What are the stops along the way and sort of where you've been, what you've done? Yeah, it starts with door-to-door sales. It was terrible. It was awful. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. I had a marketing degree, but I was enjoying the college lifestyle. I was partying pretty hard, and you know I was in a fraternity, and I didn't want to go back home because I, I felt like I had to support myself to go back home. Otherwise, I was moving back in with mom and dad. And so I, I didn't really know how to look for a job. Honestly, I, I love... Boston University where I went to college, but I was kind of unprepared to graduate and it was right after 9-11 and the, mm. the job market wasn't great and uh, you know I, I started interviewing for jobs and everything was an unpaid internship or something like that and I wasn't quite ready to leave college or at least the, the lifestyle yet and uh, I went on an interview with this company that you know basically a multi-level marketing company that promised to make you an owner of a business and you know all the things that people dream about with entrepreneurship all you had to do was go you know sell AT&T phone services to businesses that didn't want AT&T phone services or water coolers or office supplies or whatever it was and I bought the pitch hook, line, and sinker, and the next thing you know, I was in, you know, Newton, Massachusetts, trying to get people to sign up for AT&T, and it turns out I was pretty good in sales, and so I ended up being one of the highest ranking sales reps in the country, and the office that I was working in kind of went through a transition, and the, the vice president of the company, kind of the guy that was in charge of these nation of door to door sales reps, brought some of the better salespeople into his office and and was launching a new campaign so i moved from boston to orange county with this sales company and you know spent about six months in orange county which was super super fun and then they said okay your time in orange county is up you're moving to dallas texas and i if you know, what am i going to do in texas i'm a kid from california that went to school in boston <laughs> i you know texas sounds scary to me and you know i don't really like the cowboys and so, you know, I ended up moving because I thought that this was a big opportunity and they were billing it to me like, you know, there's green grass in Texas. You'll, you'll do great there. And I went and, and stayed with this company and, and moved to Texas. And eventually I got fed up and realized that I was being sold a bill of goods and that, you know, I was one of the better, if not the best salesperson. And the reason why I wasn't getting ahead was because I was teaching everybody else how to do sales. And, uh, you know, after having that realization, I was burned out. So I quit the job and I was going to finally move back home to Northern California, the suburbs of San Francisco. And uh, at my going away party, I met this girl and I felt like I had to pull my goodwill hunting moment. And, you know, I, I just couldn't quite leave yet. And so I stayed for a week and a week ended up being a month. And then I got a job working in uh, a sports marketing agency and turns out this girl mm-hmm. was totally the wrong girl for me long term, but kept me in Texas enough for another career stop. I worked for the sports marketing agency for about a year, and I realized that that neither of those things were going to work out. And then I finally moved back home and started my career in technology. Hmm. 
So what, what was the, the jump to tech? I mean, San Francisco obviously is, is a hub, right? But is it just you go knocking on doors and find the next tech company or startup to work for? Or Yeah, you know, uh, I, I started networking as opposed to just applying for jobs. And my sister worked, she's an investment banker, but she had a run at a startup for a minute because that's what you're supposed to do when you're young. And one of the people that she worked at, sorry about that, one of the people that she worked with at her startup had moved to run business development at eBay. And they were looking for a junior account manager. And so I was hired in essentially an entry level position, even though I had a couple years of work experience at eBay. And I worked my way up from being um, an account manager, you know working on larger partnerships to uh, helping run the business development team within internet marketing. And eventually I transitioned to SEO and learned a little bit about content marketing. And that kind of led me on to the rest of my career. Hmm. Yeah, the eBay experience is fascinating. When, When was that? I got to eBay, I think it was 2005. I was there for seven years, 2005 to 2012. And I actually left this wasn't planned on my seven year anniversary. So my first week was the 10 year anniversary of the company. So I was there for the second decade for most of the second decade. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember eBay because since I'm a bit younger that the heyday of eBay was right in my sort of, I guess like childhood prime. And I remember selling stuff on eBay, buying stuff on eBay, helping my mom sell stuff on eBay. And uh, that was just like, you know, that's where you went, you know, it was like the, the Amazon sort of before Amazon or maybe concurrently yeah. with Amazon. Um, it was the first internet darling. Can I tell you another funny Counting Crows story? Please do. I'm in college and I, you know, flying across the country and I left all of my book of CDs in a cab. I'm heartbroken. I'm, I'm huge into music and CDs are 15 bucks a piece. I probably had a hundred of them, you know, it's losing 1500 bucks. And I'm pissed. And so, I, you know, what do I do? I, I go on to eBay when it had was relatively new. And I made my first purchase on eBay. And I bought the first Counting Crows album for six bucks and $30 shipping. And then the guy <laughs> sent me a note, said, you didn't pay for the CD. I said, you're charging me $30 shipping. And so he wrote a negative review. I had a negative one feedback on eBay. And I wrote back to him, and at that time, you could see what the response was, something very lewd and inappropriate (laughs) that should not be found at a job interview. So then, you know, five Mm. years later, when I applied for the job at eBay, they're like, oh, do you use eBay? I'm like, I use it all of the time. They're like, cool, we're going to check your reviews. And they went on, and it was a negative one feedback with (laughs) me saying dirty things on the platform. I think the rest of the interview went well, but that was kind of embarrassing. Right. That was a a bump in the road. Maybe they liked it. Maybe they were like, hey, you know, this guy doesn't like some of these crappy customers too. Or maybe it was- (laughs) This guy doesn't take any shit from anyone. I think they probably just overlooked it and said, let's, hey, could you just go buy some stuff on eBay and get some good ratings and then we can go ahead and hire you and check off that box. (laughs) So tell me a little bit more about eBay and working, you know, what, first of all, what does business development look like in eBay? And then how did you transition into SEO? I think also in sort of like, you know, cutting edge time for search engine optimization and Google and end with eBay. Um, So the first part of that is internet. I was on the internet marketing team. So all the digital advertising and at eBay was broken up into the search team that's paid search, the SEO team, 
there was an affiliate team, a display team, and what was called portals and partnerships, which then became the business development team. So basically anything that was a fixed integration or something that needed to be negotiated to have a placement. So think mm. of, at the time, it was eBay's integration into the AOL or the Yahoo Instant Messenger or eBay's default position on the Yahoo homepage. We also did desktop icons. So when you bought a HP computer, which you know there was 10 million of them sold in a year, eBay would have their icon preloaded, and that was my job to manage that relationship, which sounds like, uh-huh. hey, you just give them the icon and you know there was all sorts of complexity in the contract of how many icons are there going to be and how do we evaluate what we should be paying you for and it's a you know are we paying for the placement are we playing for the activity from the icon so they were Mm -hmm. pretty heavily negotiated relatively large and very profitable deals and so i managed a lot of the desktop partnerships you know my boss the director of the team basically would negotiate the relationships and I would be responsible for managing them and scaling them. And eventually there were some other things like um, eBay's integration into Skype when they bought the company, Facebook and and Twitter, how we would work with them as they were kind of ascending into prominence. So a lot of the sort of fixed placements, not sort of media buys that would go away if you stop spending. Right. Yeah, that's so fascinating. This whole like integrations and partnerships theme has been interesting as of late for me because that's one of those things that's sort of hidden and maybe invisible where you sort of just assume like you know you your laptop comes preloaded with a couple of apps or a couple of icons or a couple of shortcuts or you know you use this browser and this is here or this just kind of works out of the box and i was like okay well someone was behind that and there's a reason why this exists right and this is here uh for you to so conveniently start using it was a, I believe it was an eight-figure deal annually with some of the larger OEMs, which are the, the computer manufacturers, to get the eBay desktop icon. I'm pretty sure we reached you know the $10 million mark in terms of total payments sent from eBay to the, the OEMs. So they were really big deals. I mean, when you're paying out $10 million, you obviously need to have an ROI that's meaningful, which means you're making tens of millions of dollars off of those placements. And then the debate internally was, well, would people go to eBay anyway, or are they clicking on the desktop icon? You know, that's giving them the, the placement and it reminds them to go to eBay. So they end up buying more. So testing the incrementality was always a challenge, but they were, they were big deals. Right. Well, I mean, like you said, if there's 10 million HP computers sold that year and you can have a desktop icon in every single one of them, that's at least one impression. So you could you know, measure it by $1 per impression. It's but it, not just it one impression. Be... It's one impression every time the person that hasn't deleted the icon, which very right. few people you know, go and customize everything on their computer. So it's, it's an impression every, you know, every load, every time they that's open true. their laptop. Yeah. So could could you guys actually measure like how effective it was or sort of what it drove for for eBay? There was there was an incrementality study that we did. Honestly, it was this was a while ago, so I don't remember the exact details, but we did have some gauge of incrementality and we ended up moving towards a cost per conversion 
So whenever a new user would place their first bid, that's what we would pay a bounty for. It uh-huh. wasn't just a, you know a, a toll booth where we we're paying out revenue for every transaction. It was net new customers. Right. And that's probably smarter and more aligned because then you can actually track and tell, hey, everyone that every sort of new user that you drive that makes a purchase, now we just devils, you know, give a kickback. Devil's in the details. If you're paying $50 per new user and you're getting a ton of new users, it's a great deal. If you're not getting any new users, it doesn't matter. And on the flip side, mm-hmm. if you're getting you know, one cent per bid and you're getting a billion bids, you know, do you want to take a small amount of a big number or a big amount of a small number? You know, we had to do a lot of work to basically figure out what math made sense for the business. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's, that's really, really interesting here, kind of the, the inner workings of some eBay distribution hacks. Were there any, any other examples or things like that? Yeah, you know, when I... So I was working on the instant messenger integrations. How do you get eBay into being a point of communication on, you know, AOL and Yahoo Instant Messenger? Basically what we use, like, you know, Slack for now is, you know, how do you have an eBay bot to talk to Slack or to talk through Facebook Messenger? And so the early technology was basically just having a placement where you can link off to eBay from those from those platforms or basically just creating a a search module where you can go find what item you were looking for and then link off to eBay. But because eBay was, because eBay bought Skype for billions of dollars, you know, back in the day, you know, the idea was that the two of them had to be integrated together. And so there was a lot of consternation internally about what the relationship between eBay and Skype was because the you know the the holding company owned both of them and it somehow ended up on my plate because I was the like the instant messenger integration guy cuz I had you know talked to Yahoo and AOL a couple times about how to get a desktop icon into the, mm-hmm. the equivalent of a desktop icon into their chatbots into their messenger platforms my takeaway there was sometimes it's not the integration that matters Sometimes you can use things that are really popular as a distribution vehicle. And so what we ended up doing was instead of trying to integrate eBay into Skype, we created a totally separate tool. And when you downloaded the Skype messenger, you could, I don't remember whether it was opt in or opt out, but it was bundled with eBay's uh, browser, a tool that I, a browser highlighter. The tool was called the browser highlighter. And it was a, let's call it a browser plugin. I don't remember exactly what the technology was you know, at the time. But it was something that would plug into your browser. And whenever you would be searching the web, this tool would highlight any product name it recognized. And if you hovered over it, it would show you the competitive price on eBay. Uh-huh. And so instead of trying to get eBay to work within Skype, what we ended up doing was saying, hey, Skype's growing like a weed let's distribute another piece of software. And that ended up staying, being a very popular asset and widely distributed, and it created a lot of value for eBay, not only because people were seeing you know, eBay as a comparison, you know, shopping comparison tool, it collected a lot of data. And so it became mm. valuable for eBay because it understood what shopping behaviors looked like. Right, because then you have insights into what are people actually searching for on what sites and what are the items that they are looking at, purchasing, hovering over, right, comparing? It's got to yeah. be an, an insane amount of data there. 
Yeah, there, it was. It was an insane amount of data. And, you know, the, the privacy policies and sort of the, the notion of privacy and what you can do or dare <laughs> I say get away with now yeah. is different. But yeah, there was a, it was a huge opportunity. I don't really know because I, I left, you know, or actually migrated to the SEO team, you know, after I was done building the browser highlighter. But yeah, you know, it it was thinking of Skype as a distribution vehicle, not as an integration point was kind of one of the kind of big accomplishments for me while I was at eBay. Hmm. I love it. That's a fantastic example. I'm really glad that, that we covered that one. And so then you moved, you migrated over to the SEO team. What does SEO look like at eBay? Well, there's a, a funny story here. I had been working at eBay for like five or six years and all the cool kids were leaving to take startup jobs and I couldn't get one because I didn't have any transferable skills to an early stage startup. I wasn't on uh-huh. the SEM team, so I couldn't go do SEM for a startup. I was on the negotiate a $10 million deal team. Not a lot of early stage startups are hiring that guy to run marketing. And so I you know, basically said, I, I want to go take this earlier stage path. I want to go be more of a builder and entrepreneur, but I don't really know how to do that, make the transition from eBay to those companies. They're not hiring me. So I'm going to just go do it myself. And I launched a company in nights and weekends called Strum School, which was an online guitar lesson service. And it was a kind of a combination of my passion. I was a big, I'm a big music fan. I was a more of an amateur guitar player then, but I was you know, doing open mic nights and singer or songwriter stuff. And, uh, you know, I was kind of like, hey, look, I'm not a good enough singer songwriter to do that professionally. And I'm not a good enough technologist to get one of the jobs that I want. But if I do both of them together, maybe I can specialize and be the <laughs> gu- online guitar lesson guy. Yeah. So I was really, really fired up and passionate about that, but I couldn't find a way to make it big enough to where I could leave my job at eBay because I had a nice career and, and go do it full time. And so my VP at the time while I was at eBay, who was new at the job, was like, hey, what do you want to do in your career? And I'm like, I want to do my startup, but I, I can't practically do it because it doesn't make any money. And so we basically had a, a handshake agreement that I would go onto the SEO team from the business development team to A, learn some practical skills. B, the team was in transition. The director of SEO had just left the company to go run SEO at Airbnb. And they, they needed somebody, didn't necessarily know SEO, but basically mm. just to make sure that the team stayed organized and to run the team meetings. And I, you know, I was there to be an adult in the room. And honestly, I wasn't much of an adult at the time. But I (laughs) sat next to uh, Jordan Cooney, who was relatively new at eBay, who's a brilliant SEO, ended up, you know, is one of my best friends now. But he was kind of like the brains behind the SEO team. But he was Mm -hmm. still an operator. I don't think people knew how good of a manager and an SEO strategist he was at the time. And, you know, my job was to kind of get our ducks in a row and make sure that management knew what was happening with the team and they were doing all the work. And so I was kind of there like three days a week running some meetings and taking some notes and trying to help where I can and doing like the cross-functional, cross-coordinational communication. And then the, the rest of the time I was working on my startup. And eventually it was time for me to just go and say, hey, the startup's far enough along 
and I went mm. and I left and I did uh, and it did drum school full time. Oh, I love it. And drum school was fascinating. So this is one of the other ones that I found where I was like, oh, interesting. And we were chatting about the guitar and my background a little bit before. And obviously music has been a big background, but talk about ahead of its time. I mean, today there's, uh, you know, what is it? Monthly, there's, uh, there's YouTube, there's Scott's bass lessons. There's all sorts of kind of membership sites that teach you, you know, you know, there's like a, a membership site for any sort of instrument that you want to learn. Yep. Strum school was, was really early on how I'm assuming that a lot of that was built off of SEO, but walk me through sort of what was the strategy for Strum school and how you grew it. The vision for the company was that it was going to be the migration of in-person guitar lessons that were live to the digital format. And so we were mm. going to connect guitar students and teachers basically through a marketplace model. Come on to the website and everything I thought was a marketplace model because I had just left eBay. Come on to the website, you know, pick your genre, pick your teacher, and you could schedule a lesson with them or we'll just have lesson, we'll have a teacher standing by. So when you have a guitar question, you could just be like, hey, I need somebody to help me, you know, figure out how to play this riff. Can I hire a guitar teacher for 10 minutes? And I uh, spent a lot of money and I built a beautiful looking product that hardly worked. And I made every first entrepreneur mistake in the world. I built stuff that nobody told me they wanted. I didn't do enough homework. I didn't do enough market research. And like you said, hey, you, you were ahead of the curve. That's not a good thing. Mm. That means that you're building things that people don't know that they need yet. And maybe if I had waited five or 10 years, we would have been the right person at the right place at the right time. Maybe I was the right person. Maybe I wasn't. It definitely was not the right time. Mm. And so I ended up pivoting the business to be more like what people were actually looking for after we burned through a ton of cash, which was looking for video guitar lessons, pre-recorded content. Yeah, and, right. And so we started selling packages of content in marketplaces and, you know, how do I play this song? And we were putting them on YouTube and we were also trying to sell them as packages on our website. Yeah, because I saw some kind of early screenshots and the positioning was very much like, Clarity FM meets guitar lessons. And, it, you know, like I said, it was kind of matchmaker, you know, get a, get, get a lesson or you kind of pay by the, the minute or the, you know, the, the half hour for, you know, advice from a guitar kind of pro. But then you yep. ended up later building on the, the video lessons, sort of courses, if you will, more educational content, because that's what people want. And I mean, it's frustrating, <laughs> but it makes for a good story now. Yeah, come for the Van Halen stay for the you know stay for the lessons yeah I, I appreciate that you did your homework and strum school was a well designed beautiful looking site that never really worked and didn't have a, a great positioning or a target market and um at the time my then girlfriend said she was ready for a promotion to fiance but i had to go get a steady paycheck and so once my life started you know once it was time to grow up and be a big boy then it was time to put Strum School back where it belonged as a side project and and go move along with my career. But on the flip mm. side, it wasn't just it wasn't just an outright failure. Out of that experience, what I learned was really the process of how to test and iterate. I learned how to value your cash when you're running a business. Don't build something that doesn't need to be built unless you know it needs to be built. You know, I learned all the hard lessons that every first time entrepreneur needs to learn 
And it was heartbreaking going through the struggles. And honestly, the, the website did really well. We got a lot of traffic. You know, we were tens of thousands of site visitors per day consuming the content, but nobody buying anything. And the the fun and, and tragic part of the story with Strum School is I was just about to go through an acquisition. I was having acquisition talks because somebody wanted to acquire basically the content of the company and mm-hmm. turn it into you know some sort of a subscription model. Or I didn't exactly know what they were going to do with it, but they knew how to manage content businesses, and I was trying to make it an on-demand service. And so we were going through chats about how to value the content, and as that was happening, I got hit with a manual penalty from Google, and our search uh-huh. traffic went from like 30,000 visitors a day to like two. Oh. And that was that was the end. Devastating. It was oh heartbreaking. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And it, honestly, it was a technical glitch. We were, we didn't, I didn't do anything shady intentionally. What got us, we learned later, was we tried to set up the platform so you could search for our content and then read a piece of content. But when you tried to click to the next piece of content that was gated, then you got hit with a, you need to sign up to see this piece of content. Just like what you see in the New York Times. We just didn't do a great job with the implementation. So Google thought we were gating all of the content, which is a bait and switch. And Mm. so they ended up basically murdering the site. Just flip of a switch. Sob stories with Benjamin Shapiro. Right. <laughs> I think we've all had an experience like that. Uh, to one degree or another. that one. That was tough. Right. Maybe not as brutal as that one. That's, that's pretty, pretty drastic. I am curious to hear your thoughts on, uh, this is something I found personally, and maybe just wanted to hear your thoughts out of personal curiosity, but uh, did you find that there was a difference in what you were learning and doing, doing it for yourself as opposed to for a company like eBay? Yeah, F I T F. That's that's what I learned. You know what that one is? No. Figure it the fuck out. <laughs> right. At eBay, when you don't know how to do something, this is not the fault of eBay. This is large companies, enterprises. I'm in the business development team and I don't know how to craft a social media message. So you go to the copywriting team and they write some copy. And then you say, mm. I need this social media message to be broadcast through our official social channels. And they give it to the social team and they publish the content. And then you, I need to understand how that social platform works. So you go to the analytics team and they evaluate it. And then you come back with a report. And that's just how big companies work. Everybody's got their own responsibilities. At eBay, it's I need to go – or at eBay. <laughs> Not at eBay. <laughs> when you're working for yourself, I need to go figure out which social channel I need to build. I need to figure out how to get my profile up. I need to figure out how to design my content. I need to be my own copywriter. I need to publish the content at the right time, targeting the right audience with the right hashtags. I need to figure out you know, all of my SEO research. And then I need to evaluate whether it works so I can figure out whether I need to do it myself. I had to figure it the fuck out. And yeah. so working at my own startup taught me not only, you know, I was a marketer in my head, but I actually had to learn how to actually market a product or services, a product or service. I also need to figure out how to finance a business. I also need mm. to figure out how to find an accountant. I also need to figure out how to find a place to work. I also need to figure out how to find guitar teachers. I need to figure out how to onboard them, how to pay them. All, you know, like every single different aspect of running a business was something that I was responsible for. And so I had a better understanding of how all of the different facets of business 
were integrated. And that ended up serving me better as I went to go run the marketing department at early stage startups as the next phase of my career. You know, it wasn't just that I was a marketer. It's a, I was a marketer, but I developed my last product. And I understood the impact of my marketing spend because I was running my company's P&L. That wasn't a big one, but I understood that when you spend money, it comes out of a bank account, which isn't something mm-hmm. I really thought of when I was at eBay because you never see the checking account at eBay. You don't know right. what the finances look like. There's a VP of something of something that tells you the company has enough money. So and they give you the budget and you just follow that, you know, you make sure that you're allocating correctly. And I've got $47 million to, to spend this quarter. But if I really need more budget, I can go back and petition the board to, you know, carve <laughs> me off a little piece. Uh, you know, it's just a different, I got $50,000 in my checking account and it needs to pay my salary and I need to build a product. How, how mm. do I do that? Those yeah. are two very dramatically different problems and different mindsets. And, you know, some people are great at one, some people are great at the other. I ended up actually being better at the, the sort of figuring it out myself as opposed to being a big company guy, partially because I just, I'm not great with managing the politics and I just want to go do the work and figure it out. Yeah. And that's what you did. So you went to handle, uh, head of marketing handle, VP of marketing rinse. We don't have to go into them um, too deep uh, unless there's something you know, kind of interesting or an interesting takeaway there. But I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on, given the experience having gone through Strum School, you have the contrast between the corporate environment, the entrepreneur environment. Now you're working at startups. Mm-hmm. I believe one was bootstrapped, if I'm not mistaken. Was there, what was the experience like now leading marketing at a startup? Um, yeah, but both, to both Handle two. and Rinse were venture-backed. Okay. And that that's sort of it, its own new bag of tricks where, you know, there's investors that are putting their dollars behind an idea but also applying pressure on the company to try to expedite its growth. Mm-hmm. And so there's always a sense of you got to hustle, you got to hustle because we're about to run out of money because if we don't show this gigantic growth, our investors are going to be pissed and they're going to want their money back. And so, you know, to me, the pressure that comes with the early venture back startup just wasn't a right mix. You know, it wasn't just that the pressure, it was the combination of the pressure that's applied on the company, the need for exponential growth, the do more with less resources and don't take time to do things the right way. Just hurry up and do them, right? Mm. That sort of hustle mentality. And by hustle, I don't mean work hard and work quickly. I mean, get it done at all costs, even if it kills you. Mm. That's not the type of life I want to live. And I felt a lot of pressure. Look, it makes sense if you're the founder of a company and you got all the equity and you're willing to put you know, your life on the line for this company because there's this huge windfall if it works. But as the guy that was running the marketing department with a couple of points of equity, didn't really make a lot of sense to me to like, you know, be the only person working and working in marketing and, you know, be burning the candle at both ends. But also, if this company does well, I'm going to have a nice payday, but not like my whole life has changed payday. You know, I was young, but married and, and having kids. And that just wasn't the right balance for me at the time. And honestly, had I got the job that I wanted when I wanted it, you know, right after working at eBay, I probably would have been more successful working at a startup because it would have been the only thing that I cared about. I would have been push all my Mm. chips into the table. But by the time I had worked around to getting the startup jobs, um, 
my risk and reward profile had changed. And there's nothing wrong with those businesses, and I understand why they exist. And, you know, some businesses are made to be unicorns. There's Uber. It's made to be a billion-dollar business. But a lot of the startups that take venture capital are just doomed from the start because they just don't have the ceiling that their investors want them to reach. Hmm. Or the ceiling isn't high enough, I guess I should say. And so, you know, that was kind of my takeaway through that stage of my career. I learned a lot about, you know, integrating marketing and started to learn about branding and its relationship to digital marketing, which kind of helped me figure out what I was doing as a consultant. But I just didn't resonate super well with the, like, there's always more work to do, but you should just stay and and keep working until it's done because it never ends. And I just wanted more balance in my life. I appreciate you mentioned that because it's something I don't think many people talk about and it's a little bit, I don't want to say taboo. I'm not sure the the right descriptor for it, but I feel like it takes a little bit of courage and guts to kind of uh, communicate that it's a difficult position to be in. So I actually, I just last week went on a, a podcast with my friend Ramley John. He does, he has a new kind of Twitter space show called Marketing Rants. And he's kind of mm-hmm. like, Hey, what are you like fired up about? Or what's like a, you know, hot take or spicy opinion you have. And I sort of did something. I got one. Around. Clubhouse sucks. Yeah, <laughs> right. That has been a popular one, actually. But my marketing rant was on sort of mistakes that early stage founders make with hiring marketers. And I sort of threw out the scenario of like, hey, let me let me just like, without any context, let me just describe to you what happens in a startup. A founder raises millions of dollars, and then they hire a marketer and said, hey, it's up to you and you alone to grow this business. You have one year or else you're fired. You have a million dollars, but if you don't make it, then you're gone. And also you can't, there's no, you have no help. You have to do it by yourself. You have to do all the things and figure it out along the way. You know, good luck. See you in a year, basically. And that's like, I mean, that sounds kind of crazy, but also that's, that's not normal by any means for any other type of business. I mean, look, there's a reason why you don't see a lot of, older guys working at early stage startups and by older Mm. i mean you know in their 40s and beyond and and sure that there are some companies that are different profiles and i don't mean to stereotype or discriminate against age but like it's a young man's game because of the cycles and testing and iteration that needs to go into it you know the fail fast and like hurry up and get on to the next thing like it takes a lot of energy and resolve to just work at that pace for that long mm-hmm. and it's it's it can be very valuable for the people that are great at it and there's some people that have that personality type where they're just like grind all day and i don't get me wrong like i believe in hard work but i also believe working smarter than harder and some of the times that isn't something that's appreciated in those environments. And look, I built a nice, I don't want to call it a lifestyle business, but I've built a media business that is successful, growing quickly, and, you know, is at my pace where I don't have to, you know, I can get to work at nine and leave at five and go take care of my kids. And it's not like the sky is falling or the business dries up. And so there's a, mm-hmm. you know, a different profile and lifestyle for everyone and it changes for people over time yeah i 100 percent agree so tell me a little bit so a little bit more about the business i just wanted to mention also kind of as context going into it so you've done we've talked about a couple of them but there's the martech podcast voices of search previously there was a long road home trend spotting 
for the fans by the fans finding a job if i'm not mistaken right these are all previous podcasts yep um, uh, those are so, some of those are pod faded meaning yeah, I, you pod know, faded. they were my, my six podcasts and then they were done yeah <laughs> it's just totally so, okay and normal yeah i mean look some of them didn't work that happens too uh, Absolutely. So I left my last early stage startup and I, I ended up being a marketing consultant. And the way that I found my clients was through my professional network. I had met a, long, a lot of people along the way. And you know I had 1,500 LinkedIn connections and I would get in touch with those people and say, I'm helping with brand development and marketing strategy, some of the things I learned working for early stage startups and you should hire me, help you with your marketing problems. And I did that for a couple of years and it ended up being a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue business. It was nice. It was comfortable. It was fine. But at some point I started running out of networking contacts. And so the idea behind the MarTech podcast was that it was going to help me through the people that I was interviewing and hopefully the audience that listened to the content find new leads and I would convert them to my consulting clients. And I also launched For the Fans by the Fans, which was a sports podcast that was kind of a local sports show. And I was basically trying to build that to sell it to uh, the company Fanatics because I was trying to basically work my way into a job by creating this media asset. (laughs) And both shows launched at the same time. I was doing both of them at the same time. It took about half of my effort. And the MarTech podcast absolutely just dominated the sports podcast. And I love doing the sports podcast, but I needed to focus on the MarTech podcast because it was growing really quickly. And I never tried to get the listeners to become my consulting clients. And I never really tried to get the guests to be my consulting clients either. It was just growing fast enough that I was like, I need to keep doing what I'm doing. And if I keep investing in this, I will have an asset that I will figure out how to monetize. So the strategy Mm. was, I'm building an audience. Let me just build an audience and I'll figure out how to make money from it down the road. And some of the times that's a great marketing strategy, assuming you can actually bridge the gap into monetization. And we got to 10,000 downloads a month after 11 months of the MarTech podcast. And I said, all right, I'm going to go try to sell podcast sponsorships. And what I did was I said, we're going to do some integrated advertising and we're also going to have advertorial content. We're going to invite our sponsors to be speakers on the show. And we ended up selling, I ended up selling $25,000 worth of inventory in the first month. And that was basically all of the inventory that we had for the next quarter. So I sold all the inventory for a quarter. I got 25 grand and I kind of took a step and said, I just made 25 grand in a month multiply that by 12. I should be a podcaster instead of a (laughs) consultant because, you know, if this is going to take half my time, I think I can make more in podcasting when it gets big than I will in consulting because I know what the ceiling is in consulting. And so I had the MarTech podcast and then my anchor consulting client was a company called Search Metrics or they are still called Search Metrics. And I was kind of in a transition period with my consulting agreement with them. And instead of continuing to help them run their marketing team, I was essentially the de facto head of marketing for their U.S. market. I said, I don't want to take the job that you're offering me to run the U.S. marketing department. Why don't I create a podcast with you, for you, um, and, 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 you know, I'll help you develop this new media channel and fill your awareness problems, solve your awareness Mm. problems. And so that became, they wanted me to create the trend spotting podcast because they were trying to reach CMOs. 
And I said, that's fine. I'll create the Trendspotting podcast. But I also, since you're an SEO company, I also want to create this Voices of Search podcast too because we should do something related to SEO, not just do a, a show. So I'm basically going to do two shows for you for the price of one. And the Trendspotting podcast had no great positioning and it didn't work out. And I don't even know what the idea behind it was. It was kind of a half-baked idea, but that's what the company wanted was a CMO-focused podcast. And it wasn't very unique and it wasn't very good. So that got put on ice. But the Voices of Search podcast started really growing quickly. Very similar to the MarTech podcast. And so, you know, after a year of doing that, two years into the MarTech podcast, I had scaled the MarTech podcast revenue to be, you know, in the six figures, over $100,000 of ad sales revenue. And then the MarTech, the Voices of Search podcast, the SEO podcast, I went back to search metrics and said, we're doing this show two days a week. If you want to grow it significantly, I'll do it five days a week, but I have to own the intellectual property. It's my show, and you're the sponsor of the show. And by doing that, you'll get more advertising. You'll still get to be a guest at the same rate on the show, but I'm going to go get other guests, and I all want the ability to sell advertising to other sponsors as well. Hmm. And they said yes, and so then I owned both podcasts, um, and then it was kind of off to the races in terms of scaling the the content production and the ad sales operation. And that's what I've been working on for the last year or so. That's amazing. Well, it's no easy feat. So hats off to you for creating Thanks. two successful podcasts that not only are great content, but also generate revenue in and of themselves. I think that's a big accomplishment for any podcast given sort of the, the medium and any sort of media business in general, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do is uh, sell ad spots and add inventory. I think people overcomplicate it to be honest with you. And maybe it's just mm. that I had a, a background in sales. My big problem with podcast monetization is that most of the industry is selling their content, their inventory on a per download basis, a CPM. And it's a twenty-five to fifty dollars CPM rate. That's great if you're Joe Rogan, and you get you know a million downloads per episode at fifty dollars a an ad read, and you're doing six of them. You know you're making tens of thousands of dollars if I'm doing the math the math right per episode. Mm-hmm. But when you're a niche podcast, I've got one of the bigger marketing podcasts that I you know know of, and it you know we get a hundred thousand downloads a month using a round number. If we were selling on a $50 CPM, that's five grand. I can't pay the bills in the suburbs of San Francisco making five grand a month, 60 grand a year. That's before you take out the cost of content production and marketing, right? Like that doesn't work. And so where people are selling on a CPM basis, they need to start moving that. We have a couple of different products that we use that help us sell larger packages and, and move away from this like, per download transactional model. And so it helps us generate more revenue and, and afford the cost of the production of the show. Yeah, what what are the monetization strategies and packages that you're using if you know, if yeah. it's not on a CPN basis, is there a sort of, you know, anchor metric that you use? But also just what what do sponsors get and how how did you land on sort of the current offering? Yeah, so we do four or five different products and it helps that i had a marketing background going into this and honestly worked in business development like my time at ebay figuring out what the right business model was and how to pitch it and sell it like yeah that's kind of the secret sauce for me or i guess that's where my 
talent being applied in this medium, I feel like really was a differentiator. Products are advertorial content. We invite the sponsors of our show to be guest speakers. And they get more content than the people that aren't paying. And that's great. They get to tell their story and get it across to our audience. That provides great depth of message, but it doesn't provide a lot of frequency. So people that are listening to the podcast don't listen to every episode. So, you know, even if you're doing five episodes, maybe people are listening to you for all five. But chances are they're listening to you once and they're like, oh, I understand what that company does now. And I listen to them for 15 minutes. 15 minutes is a long time when you're listening to somebody talking about marketing, unless it's this show. We need to supplement the depth of message with more frequency. And so we do host red advertising, just like all the popular shows that you've heard of. We use something called dynamic insertion. So we take all of the ads out of our entire content archive. We have 800 episodes that we've published in the MarTech podcast. And so it doesn't matter whether you're listening to the episode that was published today or the third ever episode that we we published. When you listen to it, it's got an ad that's relevant to today. So you'll listen to an ad on one episode today, and then you'll delete that episode and download it again next week. It'll be a different ad. Mm. So that allows us to serve more impressions because we can monetize our entire content library. So we serve 100 to 150,000 ad impressions per month which means that we're raising the frequency enough for our sponsors. So now people have got this great depth of message with advertorial content. They've got more frequency within our audience. But the problem is when people are consuming the content, they're listening. They're on the treadmill. They're doing the dishes. They're commuting back when you know we used to have to drive to work. <laughs> there's nothing to click on in audio. And so that means that there's no way to pixel people. There's no way to you know drop a cookie and retarget them. And so what we do is we try to bridge the gap between the awareness driving portion of our sponsorship program, the advertorial content, the host read advertising. We have the ability to capture data from not only the listeners of our show, but the people that are exposed to the ads. And so we take the data when somebody listens to a specific episode, we get retargeting data and we can build an audience. We either share that audience with the sponsor or we'll create a lookalike audience from that from that episode, and we'll go find more people that look like content consumers, and we'll try to get them to listen to the content, or we'll just do direct response marketing, right? We know that this person was exposed to this ad. Let's put something in front of them that restates the ad that gets them to click and then go to the sponsor's website so the sponsor could say, oh, I got all of this traffic, not I was on this podcast, and boy, I hope it worked. So we yeah. kind of have the combination of those five products, and that allows us to move from maybe we'll make $5,000 a month to you know 10x that. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So the, the, the funny part about, I think, a lot of podcast monetization is it's a good problem to have once you're trying to figure out how can I monetize this podcast. But step one, like you said, is how do I build an audience that I can monetize? And, uh, and that's large enough where the economics and the numbers makes sense. So a hundred thousand downloads is definitely nothing to sniff at. I think that's, you know, squarely puts you in the, the top 1% very, very easily, probably if I'm remembering my stats, right? It's, uh, how it's around the top hundred. If you, if you're comparing it to the Apple app store rankings, it's like you're yeah. one of the good marketing podcasts. Yeah. So even, you know, top 99, you know, 0.9 percentile, how do you grow a podcast or what's been your you know, maybe more aptly, what's, what's been your experience growing the podcast to where they are today? Yeah, I think that there's two key metrics to optimize for. They are subscribers, 
and reviews. And if you can get subscribers and reviews, then you'll get a lot of organic growth because you'll pop up in the app stores. And so reviews are more of a factor of networking. You know, you ask the people that were guests on the show. If you have an audience, maybe you could try to get them to review the content. I've never been very successful getting people who were my listeners to review the content. I just don't feel like when people hear, well, review me in the Apple App Store, that they're going to, oh, I'm going to take the phone out of my pocket and give you a five-star review. That's just not how it works. Hmm. So it's it's about emailing people that you know to get them to leave you a review. Subscribers is different. And and you got to get creative with actually getting people to listen and and experiment with your content. And so if you're getting a steady base of reviews and you start to figure out some marketing channels that will get new people to listen to your show, then all of a sudden you'll boost up in the rankings. And then when you boost up in the rankings, you'll get more views and more listeners and it kind of builds on itself. So when you think about subscribers, I think of it in four different channels, organic, viral, paid, and partnerships. And so organic growth is, you know, how much are you kind of doing SEO for podcasts. What are the titles? How do you talk about your podcast? How do you name it? You know, when people are searching in whatever app stores they're looking for, do you show up? And to me, that's just a question of how much content are you producing and how much do you know your topic? Hmm. When you think about virality, that's how are people sharing your content? Your guests will share your content a little bit. That just sort of happens naturally. I think the biggest way to boost virality is by working with the people that are your guests and the people that you have in your community. So like, Corey, when when we're done recording this episode, when you publish it, I'm going to share it on LinkedIn and I've got, you know, 8,000 LinkedIn followers. That's that's virality to me. Paid, actually kind of an underrated part of growing a podcast, in my opinion. Mm. We've done a lot of podcast advertising. So we buy cheap inventory basically targeting people that are listening to podcasts because we know because the ads are in podcasts. And when they're done listening to whatever podcast they're listening, they'll get an ad saying, do you want to learn how great businesses grow? Then follow the MarTech podcast. Here's a little sample of the show and search for MarTech in the app store and you'll find our show. And so, you know, we buy some media to get people to be exposed that our show exists last one's partnerships and you know that's the reason why i'm on this podcast is you know i try to be a good member of the community and create content i you know love your show and, and what you're working on but part of this is you know you you build a network within the network that you're working in you know you're a marketing yeah. podcaster we should know each other people that are in your audience will hear you know who i am and maybe be interested in the martech podcast and, you know, I try to provide some value to you, whether it's helping create a piece of content or having you as a guest on my show. And so, you know, whether it's with a, another creator, whether it's with a brand, you know, there's other types of partnerships that'll help you grow as well. There is no one real secret to growing a podcast in terms of subscribers or listeners. But if you figure out something that works for you and you're getting the reviews, generally, you know, the people that are mastering those two things are successful. Yeah. Going back to the podcast advertising for a second, do you mean, so from what you said, it sounded like you, you meant that you were buying ads on other people's podcasts. 
Or did you mean that you're buying, like there's, you know, Overcast or I think CastBox, maybe one of the others has sort of like an ability to buy an ad slot where it'll pop up on someone's phone and say, you know, kind yeah. of like show an ad read on when they're viewing another podcast or are you writing Facebook ads? Like what does that, what does that look like? Um, the two former. So what you're talking about is buying ads directly from other podcasters. Right, I, I might show up and advertise on your show for a month, so your audience is intimately familiar with me, and we get enough repetition that they're like, "Oh yeah, I do want to listen to this show." Like I said, you get depth of message from being on a sh- being a speaker, but you don't get the frequency that you need to drive the marketing impact. So I might want to, you know, follow up and you know, continue to support the shows that I'm a speaker on. A lot of what we do is programmatic advertising. So it's dynamically inserted across like shows that have basically just created a hole in their episodes and allowed other companies to fill it, not necessarily the host read stuff, but like we're recording our own ads and it's just being flighted in that. Mm. We use it. I like the, the platform Choosel. It's a little mm. complicated to get set up, but you can buy relatively inexpensive media in podcasting. And so I feel like that's been valuable for us. There used to be this platform called Knit. K-N-I-T. And I used to be able to buy uh, dollar CPM inventory that was the CNN network. So it's like you would listen to Anderson Cooper. And then when it was done, it'd be like my ad on the MarTech podcast. Oh, my gosh. Which I had like, you know, my parents' friends being like, I heard your voice on Anderson Cooper. You know? <laughs> I, like, I was listening to Jake That's Tapper amazing. the other day. And there was Ben Shapiro. And it was like you, not the political podcaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that was a great deal. But the, it was too good to be true. And so, yeah. you know, now you kind of got to hunt a little bit more to, to find some inventory. Hmm. Oh, that's great. I appreciate you explaining that. I also happen to notice that, at least for the MarTech podcast, you're a part of the HubSpot podcast network. Um, yeah, that's is the that new a, a recent thing? Yeah, this is the second full month that we've been a member of the network. The official announcement was last month, so still new and fresh and, and very exciting for us. We've got a you know, presenting sponsor, or I guess they don't want us to call us a presenting sponsor. We're working with HubSpot, and the, I guess we say the MarTech podcast is brought to you by HubSpot, but it's a, mm. you know, they we're partnering with them to help with distribution, and they get some ad spots in the content. We really are trying to work closely together, not only to figure out how to grow the show, but also to integrate HubSpot into some of the content we're producing. So I'll be talking about you know what I'm doing to use HubSpot, and HubSpot will talk about what they're doing to grow HubSpot and what they've learned about you know marketing their brand as well. So, yeah, super excited about working with HubSpot. They're awesome. They're absolutely wonderful. Yeah. What? Well, so okay. So HubSpot has been sort of in the limelight for me. One, I saw the the announcement and I've sort of applied for interest in the network, but I don't really know. I don't have any experience being in a network and I really know what it means to be in the network. And you alluded to a few things, but it's, it's interesting just because I, I think the HubSpot is, has a track record of being a little bit on the bleeding edge and, you know, they've acquired the hustle and they're very much thinking about, you know, media distribution and impressions and getting in front of mm-hmm. more people. But also what, what does it do for, for you? Is that, is that essentially also uh, a deal with HubSpot as a sponsor? You know, can you still have other yeah. sponsors or is there so, some sort of exclusivity there's a couple of different things I'll, I'll break it up into what's in it for hubspot hey they get to put their name on the podcast and they get some sponsorship benefits like advertising space 
you know, we put their name on our podcast logo. So there's a branding play as well. There's that sort of like transactional stuff. I do think that they're taking a very intelligent approach building the network in. It is not just like, hey, advertise HubSpot now. It is like, let's give you access to HubSpot so you on the MarTech podcast can talk about how you use it. Hey, we want to talk to the marketing community about how HubSpot is growing HubSpot. Because it's not just about, you know, what channels you should use that help our business, but like what we do and they want to be thought leaders. And they're honestly building a community of really smart podcasters in different verticals. So there's a show in operations and in entrepreneurship. Have you heard of EO Fire, John Lee Dumas' yeah, oh show? Yeah. Right, like that he's a member of the HubSpot Podcast Network. When I actually saw the list, my jaw dropped. I was like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> right. That's a big podcast. One that I listen to, you know, regularly. And, you know, there's some other really popular and really great podcasts in operations, in sales. And so, you know, they're kind of picking off these individual verticals and taking what they think to be the best in class podcasts and bringing them onto the network. And then there's also some idea of co-promotion between the podcast hosts. You know, I think that eventually I will have the other podcast hosts that are in the network as my guest and and hopefully vice versa as well. So Mm -hmm. there's a partnership aspect. So, I mean, for me, yeah, I mean, it helps pay the bills that obviously there's a monetary thing, but it's also co-promotion. There's knowledge sharing, it's exposure, it's credibility. So from, from my perspective, this was like a no brainer. A, you know, it it buys like half of our advertising inventory for a long period of time. So there's less ad Mm. sales that I have to do which is great because it gives me security to go focus on building a great, you know, show, not being so caught up in like, well, are we going to make payroll this month? But I get to really focus on the content and it allows yeah. me to do things like this, you know, go and, and be a more active and vocal member of the community. And, you know, people ask questions about the HubSpot podcast network. I'm sure that there's a branding, you know, play for them, but honestly, I've been really wowed by how, altruistic their approach has been in helping the podcasters it's like you're gonna pay me and you're gonna market the show and you're gonna tell me what's working with all these other podcasters and you're gonna get (laughs) us all together in a room and you're buying dinner what it's 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 really it's kind of been a dream come true yeah i'm sold i I think they're they're really really smart i I sort of had a controversial opinion a while back where I was sort of thinking, you know, as a podcaster myself and as someone who's also bought podcast ads in the past and, you know, I've kind of like been on both sides of the table and seen what other people have done and heard lots of stories. I was thinking, I was like, you know, if I was a company, I don't know if I would really be starting a lot of podcasts. It's sort of like this whole start a business versus buy a business debate. And especially recently, I don't know if it's maybe just kind of my bubble and echo chamber. I've been seeing more and more people kind of tout the the benefits of just buying a business because it's, you know, it's something proven and you already have distribution and sort of like a, a Kickstarter, you're accelerating. The reason why I thought that HubSpot was really smart to buy the hustle. And for the same reason, I would just, if I was HubSpot, I would go and, you know, buy up ads for a whole bunch of podcasts because they're basically... HubSpots in a, in a way, especially if they're part of the network, right? And that's sort of like the, the key yeah. there that really makes uh, well, it work. And I had that question for them too. When we first started the conversation, I'm like, are they going to try to buy the show? And then I got to value the show and I got to, you know, think about what I want to do. And, you know, it, it wasn't that at all. 
they did not buy the Martech podcast. They are, you know, essentially a presenting sponsor. They a very important part of our show now. But you know, they're they're sponsoring the show. And so they made no gestures to acquire the IP. And the approach was, look, creators are best served creating for themselves, not being an asset for HubSpot. You're going to do a better Mm -hmm. job when you have ownership of the IP and you're growing your business and we want to support you in that. And there's benefits for us in supporting you, obviously. But I think that they are really trying to foster a creator community, which as a creator, I'm psyched about. You know, it's like, hey, we got the horsepower of this, you know, publicly traded company and seemingly endless resources. I know that, you know, the, the buck doesn't go forever, but you know, like they're putting budget in and resources into content creation and advertising and all this stuff to help grow the the entire community. And, you know, I I think it's a really smart strategy because they're obviously going to get a lot of exposure by working with some of these big podcasts, but they've also made it very easy for the podcasters to be like, no, I don't see a downside here. Like literally the only downside I could see is our relationship is for a couple of years. And so I'm like, all right, well, that means I couldn't sell the podcast for a couple of years. Well, I wasn't planning mm. on doing that anyway. And the value right. of it is only going to go up because they're going to help me market the show more than I could. So it was kind of a no-brainer for us. And honestly, it's been great so far. It's truly a win-win relationship where they sort of reap all the benefits of as if it was their own show or if they were to buy it without doing either of those things. But also you as the podcaster get an amazing slew of benefits across the board that you wouldn't have access to or just makes your life easier. And uh, and it really doesn't cost you very much. Like I said, there really isn't a a big downside there. So yeah, hats off to them. There's risk for them, you know, in, in making the investments without owning the IP. But on the flip side, it definitely I think keeps the content creators motivated. Mm. I know I am, yeah. you know, I feel obligated to do a good job and to make sure that I'm being honest and truthful. Cause it's still my show. I don't want to be a shill for HubSpot, but on the flip side, they've done nothing but treat me well. And I think the product is awesome. So easy to sell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, beginning to wrap up here, I'd love to take a peek at your swipe file as it were into some marketing examples, campaigns, landing pages, ads, commercials, videos, podcasts that you think are cream of the crop, the best that are notable. It could be anything, you know, it's really open to interpretation. Are there a few that come top of mind for you that you could possibly walk me through? You're going to, you're going to put me on the spot here. I was watching the Giants baseball game, a big baseball fan and finally got my son who's four years old to start watching the games with me. And there was a USAA commercial and, you know, we're sitting around and they just said, USAA, USAA, enough, over and over again. This commercial ran like three times in three innings that uh-huh. my son was running the ha- around the house going, USAA, USAA, <laughs> like for days, for days. That's all. Oh, he would he'd just be running around yelling, USAA. He doesn't know what it means, but it was just that catchy jingle. And, you know, sometimes you just got to say it with the – sometimes it's how you say it, not what you say. And I mm-hmm. thought that, you know, whoever wrote that jingle with, you know, whatever meathead is yelling USAA, who I cannot stand right now, it definitely caught my son's attention and now I'm passing it on. And so now it's in the ether. So that's <laughs> one that stuck out in my mind from a sort of catchy jingle type marketing. We think a lot about yeah. digital advertising and, you know, tracking everything. Sometimes it, it's not what gets tracked, it's what gets remembered. 
Mm. And so I, that was the first one that popped in my head. On a personal note, I think the, the other campaign that we just did a, a review generation campaign. And so I emailed like 250 people and I created an email template. If I could do it off the top of my head, the copy was something to the extent of, hey, person's name, how's my favorite podcast guest question mark? I just wanted to give you a quick update on how your episode has been downloaded since month year of publication. Your episode was downloaded number of download times. One of the way that we're able to continue to distribute content like yours is by optimizing our show to be visible in Apple iTunes and the podcast app store. And there's two key metrics that help us do that. It's reviews and subscribers. I'd love your support driving reviews, which in turn will help circulate your content more. Can you leave us a, a review in the iTunes store? Here's some instructions on how to do that. You know, thanks, and let me know if I could return the favor, Ben. And we sent that email out, and we instantly saw like, you know, 15 reviews come in, and 15 reviews can make a meaningful impact in your business hmm. if you're a podcaster in a short period of time. And so we saw some pretty good spikes in terms of our downloads. So that's a, a campaign that we ran. Didn't cost a thing. Feel free to reuse the copy. And, and it was great and kind of a short, like, hacky way for us to kind of have a boost of growth at the end of the month. Definitely going to swipe that. And uh, one, one comment on the, uh, the USAA campaign. My wife and I have been watching a lot of uh, basketball, NBA playoffs. We're kind of both basketball junkies. Who, who's your team? And Clippers. Kawhi Leonard. Sorry. Always been a big fan <laughs> since uh, SDSU. I know. <laughs> right. It's a tough uh, tough legacy, but maybe one day yeah, we'll make it. They, they got a shot. They bounce back against the map, so you're, you're in good position. Yeah, it's 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 the curse of the San Diego teams or the previous San Diego teams, and yeah. uh, so we'll see. But we, you know, it's it's on Hulu is what we watch it on, and Hulu has like the same five commercials that just get, you know, repeated on on every channel. Essentially, is what mm-hmm. it seems like. USAA is one of them. State Farm is one of them. It's like my wife and I basically have Verizon. We have like the commercials memorized by this time, and USAA is one of the ones that we always laugh about because it's just so catchy. I, I honestly have heard USAA like 2,000 times over the long weekend. <laughs> oh, man. I Yeah, it kind of makes you hate them maybe a little bit more than like them. And so maybe there's a, <laughs> maybe it's a double-edged sword there. I'm not buying anything from them. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they get the free exposure here. So counts for something. You're welcome. Yeah. Final question. When I say everything is marketing, the title of the, the podcast, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? You know, I think of marketing being the overlap of, uh, from a business perspective, the overlap of what your company is and who you're trying to reach. And so inherently, you know, you could be marketing an idea, a concept, a product, or a service, but it's understanding who you are and what you're trying to get across with the people that are trying to receive that message. And if you start with the foundation of understanding who you're trying to get across and what their pain points are, then all of the tactics that we think about, which are often advertising or operations or product adjustments, product development, you know, those kind of fall in line. But to me, marketing is finding that overlap between what your company or or service is, what you as an organization or a person are trying to say, and what the people that you're interested in telling it to actually want to hear. Hmm. 
Love it. Ben, thanks so much for sharing everything today. It was truly a pleasure. And I love getting the behind the scenes kind of scoops and uh, the stories and uh, really, really appreciate it. Corey, I had a blast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me as your guest. Thanks again to Ben for coming on the show and also make sure to check out the MarTech podcast. If you can do me a quick favor, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for sharing everything today and let him know what you thought as well. So to wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. One, Ben's experience at eBay and some of, the, some of the distribution hacks they figured out were fascinating. I mean, getting onto millions of computers, desktops is an amazing feat. I also noticed how Ben went through a few podcasts before he really hit his stride and found the one or two actually that took off. I think the lesson here is don't give up on your content inhibitions. Love the craft and pursue traction. And finally, Strump School is such a fascinating case study of being a bit too early in the market. Sometimes it hurts to be the innovator, and it's a harsh truth, but it is the truth. You have to match the market with what it wants today in order to give it what it needs tomorrow. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.